Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I am standing right next to my, uh, Martin Scorsese's star on the Walk of Fame. I'm about to catch a meow. If you were to ask me, hey, Alex, where is the epicenter of American pop culture? First, I'd say, well, that's kind of a weird question given our postmodern, decentralized media environment. But then I'd say it's between Highland Avenue and Orange Drive on Hollywood Boulevard. It's undeniably the most touristy part of Los Angeles. There's the famous Chinese theater where they premiered classic American films from The Wizard of Oz to Jackass Forever. There's a guy here who will rent you a Lambo for 150 bucks so you can drive around like a celebrity from the 80s. There's a place you can get acting classes, there's a branch of the Church of Scientology, and the sidewalk is full of stars. I can see Sharon Stone and Mickey Mouse's stars from where I'm standing. Everything, basically, that you could want. The stars are out. And all along the Walk of Fame, there are people in costume, dressed as the true icons of American media. Why did you choose Mickey as your character? Oh boy, why did I choose Mickey? Because Mickey is a good money maker. Everybody loves Mickey. Mickey and company are small business people. They charge tourists for photos. And just like at Disneyland, the bigger characters tend to be the biggest draws. The screaming Mickey, Minnie, Mickey, Minnie's. I was a Iron Man, I was Black Panther. This guy was a human crossover event, part Spider-Man and part Deadpool. But they weren't working, so, but when I put on like uh, Mr. Deadpool and the Spider-Man, everybody's like, oh my God, it's so cool, let me get a photo. Yeah. I asked Mickey and Deadpool Spider-Man one simple question. What is the biggest entertainment franchise in the world? Their answers were very on-brand. Disneyland. Marvel. Both good guesses, both totally wrong. In terms of revenue, cold hard cash, it's not Disney and it's not Marvel. The correct answer. In fact, did you want to know? Why is that correct? It's Pokemon. A Pokemon? Why Pokemon? I used to work for Pikachu. You really know Pikachu? Or yeah, you know Pikachu? I, yeah, I knew a Pikachu. It didn't work. I mean, a lot of people wanted photos with the Pikachu, but it just, like, if he's by himself, they're just gonna, like, run off. So, you know, you gotta have control. If you don't have control, you lose a lot of money out here. They're just right. gonna take photos and run off. The fact remains, if you separate out individual franchises, i.e. if you don't count Marvel and Star Wars characters as Disney characters, then Pokemon is the single highest grossing franchise in history, $110 billion in revenue. Mickey, Minnie, and that whole family of trademarks is the third biggest. Star Wars is fifth, and Marvel is eighth. I've said it before, but in this case, it's literally true. Hits do not get bigger than Pokemon. Americans love being number one. And as long as there's been pop culture, we've thought of ourselves as its leading exporters. Because from Berlin to Beijing to Brisbane, everybody around the world knows and we assume loves Mickey, Spider-Man, and all their amazing trademarked friends. But that number one slot, the world's biggest individual pop culture franchise, now belongs to another kind of mouse. 
a little yellow electric rodent who was created not here in the U.S. of A., but in Japan. Obviously, Mickey Mouse is one of the most iconic figures of all time, but so is Pikachu. This season on The Big Hit Show, we're looking at the biggest hit of all time and how it happened. Pokemon came out of nowhere like a right cross and just boom. Mr. Arakawa felt like the way that it was being embraced by kids in Japan, that kids in the U.S. weren't that different and that it was something they were going to love. I thought this is Japanese brilliance to ask a child that they have to get them all. How brilliant is that? I presented Gotta Catch Em All, and we got some pushback that said, you know, you can't have that declarative statement like that telling kids what to do. Pokemon's success is so profound that I think it goes beyond being a product. It's kind of a genre unto itself. Pokemon is where the eyeballs are in any way you want it to be. Statues, toys, cards, comics, TV, movies, video games. It's, it's, it's everywhere. From higher ground, this is The Big Hit Show. I'm Alex Papadimus. In this, the first episode of our Pokemon season, we're going to survey the vast and varied Poke Empire to find out what makes these cute monsters irresistible and insanely lucrative. We'll tell you a story about the man who invented them, and then hang on tight as we leap forward to 2016, when the launch of the adorable and highly addictive mobile game Pokemon Go reaffirmed Pokemon's global ubiquity and kicked off the last fun summer in human history. Chapter 1. Get Outside It really is a world that revolves around kids and their connection to these pocket monsters, right? And it's a bunch of kids that when they're 10 years old, they get set out to the world to go on this grand adventure. Is there anything cooler than that? This is Tim Geddes. He co-founded a YouTube pop culture channel called Kinda Funny, which produces a lot of content about video games. My relationship with Pokemon begins at the very beginning. I was eight years old when Pokemon first came to America, and I am 32, and I've been trying to catch them all ever since. Pokemon is one of the most unique video game franchises of all time because of, ironically, its unwillingness to evolve. It is the same thing over and over and over again. Sure, it might look a little prettier. Sure, there are new monsters. But at the end of the day, it's the exact same experience. Pokemon is now a multimedia empire. There's a card game that spawned a giant collector's market. There was a hit cartoon series. They've made Pokemon comics, Pokemon movies, and too many licensed products to count. But this all began with video games. The very first Pokemon games came out in Japan in 1996. Back then, you were still looking for Poketo Monsuta, Pocket Monsters. Pokemon, the abbreviation known around the world, came later. As of now, there are almost as many different Pokemon video games as there are years since it first came out. Around 20 games in about 25 years. And they all more or less follow the same script. 
At the start of the games, you get a little orientation. There are these little fantasy creatures living all over the world. They're called Pokemon, and you're what's called a Pokemon trainer. Your mission is to capture at least one of every Pokemon in existence. In the original games, there were 151, although now there are more than 900. To capture a Pokemon, you use something called a Pokeball. But you can't catch a Pokemon in the Pokeball until you've weakened it by pitting it against one of your Pokemon in a battle. It's kind of like cockfighting, but in a really nice way. If your Pokemon loses the fight, they don't die. They just go back and chill out in the ball until their strength returns. Sending your Pokemon into battle is how you train them. The more your Pokemon battles, the stronger it becomes, and eventually it levels up or evolves into a more powerful version of itself. In the original Pokemon games, when the orientation is over, the story starts. The scene cuts to a little boy. This was before there was the option to start as a girl. The boy is in his room, sitting in front of a TV, playing a game on a Nintendo console. A dialogue box pops up that says, Time to go. The boy walks away from the game and heads downstairs. His mom is watching TV. The mom turns to the boy and says, All boys leave home someday. It's said so on TV. And the boy walks outside. From the very beginning, Pokemon puts a stake in the ground. This game is going to be about more than mindless button mashing. This is an adventure. You're the new Pokemon trainer on the block, and you have to go be the best. You have to be the very best, like no one ever was. My first copy was blue. I actually have it right here in my hand to, to this day. Um, so the thing there was I, I came from a poorer family, so uh, I didn't actually get a copy to myself for a couple years. Tim remembers when Pokemon first came to America in 1998. And when he had the money to get the game, he was ready. When I eventually finally did get uh, my copy of Pokemon, being able to have my own adventure and decide how I wanted to do it, do it differently than my friends did, I think was such an a amazing experience that, that really formed who I am today. And I, I know that, that that might sound trite to say. For eight-year-old Tim and millions of other young Pokemaniacs, Pokemon was a super accessible introduction to the fundamentals of video games specifically role-playing video games, or RPGs. So many people have compared Pokemon or described Pokemon to me when I was first, like, why do you like this? They're like, well, it's baby's first RPG. Greg Miller is Tim's co-worker. He's the CEO of Kind of Funny, and he's been a commentator on video games for 15 years. This is where you learn those mechanics. This is where you understand uh, how these different types fight, how you understand leveling up. At the most basic level, an RPG is about you, the player, taking a character on some quest through some weird world. You pick stuff up, you get in fights, and you level up. RPGs have roots in paper and pencil tabletop games like Dungeons & Dragons, but people have been making them for the computer since the 70s. There were RPG video games before Pokemon, like Final Fantasy and The Elder Scrolls, but Pokemon is cuter and far more kid-friendly which means that even really young kids are able to enter a complicated world and quickly feel a sense of mastery. Pokemon just does these things, these mechanics, these beats, these gameplay, you know, meat and potatoes so well and so easily that it, it does a great job of drip feeding and making the big moments of the game feel rewarding, that they are moving the needle and moving your journey forward. RPGs are essentially about choice. Here's the game. Here's your powers. Now, how do you want to beat it? 
In the first Pokemon games, you have to pick one of three starter Pokemon. A Bulbasaur, a Squirtle, or a Charmander. Charmander! These Pokemon all have the potential to become really powerful, so what a lot of people do is focus on training and evolving their starter Pokemon over the course of the game, so that their little Charmander can one day grow up to be a formidable fire-breathing Charizard. By the way, the Pokemon company is notoriously proprietary, so we weren't allowed to use any of the game's real sounds. So whenever you hear the sound of a Pokemon in this show, the role of that Pokemon will be played by me. Apologies in advance. Anyway, when Tim Geddes first played the game, he didn't do it the way most people do it. He chose a Bulbasaur as his starter, but then he went looking for a little bug Pokemon that he knew from the cards and the cartoons. I was like, I'm gonna go find a Caterpie. And I'm going to catch the Caterpie, and that's going to be my partner Pokemon. I'm not going to play by the rules that the game has given me. I'm going to do this. He used his Bulbasaur to catch a Caterpie, and then used that Caterpie as his actual go-to Pokemon. He sent it into battle over and over, and kept working with it until it leveled up, or evolved, to its final form, becoming a Butterfree. A super butterfly that can produce spores to hinder its foes, and also, it says here, learn psychic attacks. It's important to underline here how crazy this is. Tim was bringing the Pokemon equivalent of a knife, or maybe a spoon, to a series of increasingly difficult gunfights. But armed with this once puny Pokemon, Tim eventually beat the game. And that felt special to me, and that was a choice that I got to make as an eight-year-old. And I think that there's a power to that that is very, very cool. And I think that it was that level of decision-making from a narrative standpoint that allowed the gameplay elements to really, really let your, your personality shine through the use of catching one of the 150 Pokemon that were available in the game and then catching another and another and another, which are the ones that you were going to raise as your children. And it really did kind of feel that way. This was a feeling unique to Pokemon. You're given a whole world of creatures, and you decide which ones you're going to care for and nurture and explore with. But another really important, kind of groundbreaking aspect of the game involved the platform it was made for. Even in its earliest form, Pokemon was not a game you had to play in your house, on a console hooked up to your TV. From the very beginning, the Pokemon games were mobile games. Game makers and creators had long envisioned, uh, you know, long dreamed of trying to get games back out into the world again. This is Matt Alt. He's a Tokyo-based writer and translator. Back in 2003, Matt founded a company that specializes in localization, helping Japanese companies adapt their products for Western audiences. And in 1989, Nintendo released a really seminal product known as the Game Boy. And now you can take Nintendo wherever you want to go with the Nintendo Game Boy, pocket size with interchangeable cartridges. More than 5 million will be sold by the end of this year. The Game Boy is one of the most best-selling video game systems of all time, of any kind, you know, even compared to, you know, consoles that you plug into your television. If you took away a modern child's, like, Nintendo Switch and made them play a Game Boy for a week, they would probably sue you for emotional distress. It wasn't a particularly great console. Its screen was quite low resolution and, and had a lot of lag on it. The earliest black and white Game Boy had this kind of sickening blur when you played anything at speed. And there was no backlight. So if there was no light in the room, you were out of luck. But it did have a feature 
that at the time, people didn't really appreciate how revolutionary it was. And that is a device called the link cable. Every Game Boy had a serial port. And with a link cable, you could connect your Game Boy to someone else's. And when you did that, suddenly, in the days before Wi-Fi, you had a network. Tim Geddes again. For the first time ever, two Game Boys can interact with each other, which meant that you had to be within three feet of another human being uh, to be able to enhance each other's game and, and it be a part of each other's Pokemon world. And if you wanted to catch all the Pokemon that were available, and of course you did, you had to interact with other people. The first Pokemon game released in the United States was actually two games, Pokemon Red and Pokemon Blue. Each version featured Pokemon you could only collect in that version of the game. Besides being a genius way to sell more game cartridges, this meant that if you were playing Pokemon Blue, there were certain characters you could only get by trading with someone who played Pokemon Red, and vice versa. All of a sudden, this was a communal video game. And I feel that so many kids of the, the late 80s, the 90s, are, were used to sitting around a TV, passing the controller back and forth after you lost in Mario. But I think what Pokemon allowed was for kids to feel like they were doing something that had never been seen before and that parents didn't understand. And the idea that you're not alone. All these kids are going out in their adventure. And it felt that way in real life. These were and still are the essential elements of Pokemon. The idea of getting outside, choosing your adventure, nurturing your chosen virtual creatures, and this incredible quirk of the game. The fact that if you wanted to, as the saying goes, catch them all, you were required to get out into the world and link up with another living person. That instantly made Pokemon not just competitive, but cooperative. The creator of Pokemon saw the link cable and imagined it as a hollow tube through which creatures could walk from one device to another. All those things have been baked into the game from the very beginning because they were all a part of the story of the man who invented Pokemon. To understand Pokemon, you have to understand its creator. And to understand him, you have to understand the specific cultural moment he grew up in. The word otaku actually is nothing more than a very polite way of saying the word you in Japanese. Tokyo-based writer Matt Alt again. In the 1970s and early 1980s, people started noticing that a certain segment of Japanese society, of young people, was using this term to refer to one another. And that was obsessive consumers of pop culture of all types. At first, when the word otaku gets colloquialized, it's a way to describe people who are perceived as a societal problem because they're refusing to grow up and become useful members of that society. The term otaku refers to a young adult who has refused to graduate from their childhood pleasures of comic books and cartoons and toys. Obviously, in America, we have a version of the same thing, except we call them nerds or geeks. And while nerds and geeks have kind of taken those words back in recent years, they were also initially used pejoratively, often by people who were stuffing nerds and geeks into lockers. The otaku were really the first 
generation of consumers to turn the things that they consumed into their identities. And I think that is really what scared the powers that be, that suddenly people are structuring their identities not around the socially acceptable things of work, family, they're structuring it around the things that they consume, and most specifically, the fantasies that they consume. And video games played a very big part in that dramatic shift. Enter one of those societal rebels, a man named Satoshi Tajiri. Satoshi Tajiri is someone who was absolutely obsessed with video games as a kid. He sort of lived them. He studied them. In 1983, he started a self-published video game magazine called Game Freak, and then a video game development company also called Game Freak. And in 1990, Satoshi Tajiri came up with an idea for a game that would become Pokemon. Satoshi Tajiri is a person whose life is inextricably linked to video games. But the really interesting thing is, it didn't start that way. Chris Kohler is a video game historian, and he wrote a book called Power Up, How Japanese Video Games Gave the World an Extra Life. Satoshi Tajiri seems to have been born at the perfect time to witness uh, the transformation of, like, childhood from the no video games era to the video games era, which certainly in Japan seems to have been a pretty big change. Satoshi Tajiri is still alive, but he's notoriously reclusive. He rarely does interviews, but here's what we know. Tajiri was born in 1965, so there were no video games for him to play as a kid. The place he's living in is like it's outside of Tokyo, but it's like it's not a sort of a big city environment. But one of the popular things for Tajiri and his classmates to do, you know, when he was in elementary school, uh, would be to go out into nature and uh, try to find and collect uh, bugs. Uh, Tajiri got apparently really into it, like like way more so than the other kids. Like they really looked up to him. Apparently they called him like, uh, like Mushi Sensei or like Dr. Bug because he really learned a lot about insects. But one day he goes out there and his favorite little fishing hole has been filled in. Matt Alt again. And then a few weeks after that, a building is built on the top of it. And it turns out to be a video game arcade. And Tajiri is at first completely at a loss. But then when he goes in, he discovers this entire new world full of creatures of a different kind. Pixelated, digital creatures, video game characters. After they paved paradise and put up an arcade... Tajiri, ironically enough, got really into a game about invaders from space. At that moment, at the end of the 70s, he is hardly the only person in Japan participating in that phenomenon. Chris Kohler again. There's lots of stories you can hear about space invaders in Japan where it sort of took over, and it really did to the extent that if somebody was running a coffee shop, they would just replace all of the tables with Space Invaders machines. And this, it was the, the sort of cocktail table or the, the flat top arcade game table. So you'd put your coffee or more likely your cigarettes on top of this thing and feed money into it and just play Space Invaders. And that's what people would do on their lunch breaks and coffee breaks and things like that. From an early age, Tajiri exhibits the single-mindedness and collector's instinct of a true nerd. Tajiri got, got deep into Space Invaders and video games like he got into bugs. Space Invaders, Pac-Man, Donkey Kong, Centipede, all of these sorts of classic early video games, they totally entranced 
Tajiri. And he sort of devoted his entire life to them to the point where his parents were absolutely freaking out. It was as sinful as shoplifting, Tajiri told Time magazine in 1999. My parents cried that I had become a delinquent. This was a big inflection point between generations and society. To them, video games were a sort of threat. They were stealing away the attention of young people. They were drawing young people out of uh, the real world and into a fantasy world. Just look at why Tajiri started playing video games. He was in the real world, and it was actually unchecked urbanization. All of these new subdivisions, all of these new buildings, all of these new shops being built and rebuilt and overbuilt and pushing the Japanese sprawl further out into the suburbs that deprived him of his chance to play outdoors and drove him indoors again. Remember how that first Pokemon game starts with the boy putting down the controller and going outside? This is kind of the opposite. The outside world, the world of Tajiri's childhood, is changing. From Tajiri's perspective, it's dying. And so Tajiri comes inside and, on a screen, rebuilds a version of that world with its magic intact. I think it's, it's unbelievably relevant that the first Pokemon game opens up with the protagonist literally getting up from in front of his TV and, and putting down his video game controller and walking downstairs past his mom, who's glued to the TV, and venturing out into the world on his own. It's kind of symbolic, I think, of how young people in the world today see themselves as being on their own, as they're not really being any adults in the room anymore. There's not really any role models to, to base your own future on. So that story they walk you through at the start of the game is part fantasy, but it's also part autobiography. Satoshi Tajiri is that little boy. In the Japanese version of the Pokemon cartoon... The protagonist, known in America as Ash, is named Satoshi. Tajiri was interviewed once on Japanese TV about what his favorite Pokemon is. He said it was Poliwag, a little blue tadpole Pokemon with a swirl on its belly. As a boy, I used to catch frogs. I would also catch tadpoles. When I picked them up and looked at their bellies, their bellies were translucent. I was startled by that, you could say. Poliwag is the surprise I felt as a boy, that feeling translated into the swirl on its stomach. So I feel attached to it. Nostalgia is a form of pain. The Greek roots of the word are nostos, meaning to return home, and algos, an ache. Pokemon is this fun creature-catching adventure game, but it's born from Tajiri's nostalgia, from the experience of watching the city erase the world where he spent his childhood, catching bugs. I think Tajiri's creation, as wonderful as it is, is actually a, a desperate attempt to grapple with loss in a lot of ways. The loss of those sort of outdoor experiences that he had as a very little kid that were taken away from him as his country urbanized. He basically recreated a public natural space within the confines of a Game Boy cartridge, uh, a little slice of heaven 
you know, that you could carry around with you in your pocket, in your hand. But what probably would have been unfathomable to Satoshi Tajiri back then is that 30 years after he invented this fantasy world, millions and millions of people would still be carrying it around in their pockets. Flash forward to the Empire. Finally tonight, the latest video game craze to sweep the United States and Japan. It's called Nintendo. Pokemon is creating a monster of a commotion for America. It's the biggest thing from Japan since the Power Rangers. The Pokemon Company is a private company, so they don't report detailed financial statements, but they do release like top-line numbers. This is business journalist Bure Lam. In 2016, around the 20th anniversary of Pokemon, Bure was writing for The Atlantic, and she got interested in the franchise and its survival into the 21st century as both a business and a culture story. I walked into this very cool um, game store in my neighborhood, and there were just a bunch of young kids playing Pokemon. And I, I really was like, what? Kids are playing Pokemon? Isn't that from my youth? So she wrote a few stories about it. And then my editor was just like, okay, enough Pokemon, okay? And for a while, that was it. But this is how it had been. For decades. In the 2000s, the Pokemon company wasn't doing badly, but they weren't doing great. Some years, they wouldn't make a profit. When I was reporting on Pokemon in 2016, um, during the 20th anniversary, they had sold uh, 275 million video games, over 21 billion trading cards in more than 70 countries. But it still felt like this under-the-radar thing. It wasn't like we were talking about it all the time. This has kind of always been the narrative. People assume that the death of Pokemon is a matter of when, not if. There's a lot of scholarly writing about Pokemon as a phenomenon that looks at it in the past tense, as a late 90s fad that had come and gone. But that's the thing about Pokemon. They might faint and leave the field of battle for a little while, but they never die. The Super Bowl ad was, I think, the first tip-off that they were going to do something new, something futuristic. So, yeah, it's Super Bowl 50, Denver versus Carolina. Average hourly viewership, 111.9 million people. And the Pokemon company buys 30 seconds of mind-bogglingly expensive commercial time to show an ad that, at first, seems to have nothing to do with Pokemon. Instead, we're watching kids around the world inspiring each other to compete. A long-distance runner inspires a chess master who inspires a football player. We see their determined faces, the fire in their eyes. And then, boom! We cut to a kid in a packed stadium about to hurl a Pokeball at an actual 3D Charizard. Why on earth is Pokemon doing a Super Bowl ad? Like, it just made no sense. And so I was like, okay, maybe something's coming. Maybe something cool. Like, who knows? And I remember thinking that this brand was heading maybe in a new direction. About a month later, the world found out what that commercial had been teasing. It was, of course, the mobile game known as Pokemon Go, which dropped in July 2016 and brought Pokemania roaring back to life. So, okay, you know that scene in the 1988 John Carpenter movie, They Live, where Roddy Piper puts on the special glasses and suddenly he can see hidden messages on every building, every newsstand, because the Earth's been invaded and nobody knows but him? 
Playing Pokemon Go was like that scene, except the glasses were your cell phone, and when you looked at the world through the eye of the app, you could suddenly see cute little Pokemon coming out of the woodwork of your everyday life. And you could catch them and do all the Pokemon things. But now, it wasn't just that you didn't have to stay home to play it. You basically couldn't. Once you'd caught all the Rattatas and Pidgeys in your little apartment, if you wanted to catch them all, and again, you did, otherwise, what were you doing playing this game? You had to go places, walk around. And for a while in 2016, the streets of every city in the world seemed to be full of people doing just that. Now to that Pokemon Go craze that's sweeping the nation. Pokemon Go has been out for just six days and it's become a national addiction. Number one in the Apple and Android app stores. The app uses your phone's GPS and camera to bring you to real locations to collect items and spot Pokemon. It's basically the main status quo for everyone around us right now is, are you playing Pokemon Go? And of course, because 2016 was also the year of the worst election ever, presidential candidate Hillary Clinton was presumably told by a comparatively young person that it was a good idea to say this. I don't know who created Pokemon Go, but I'm trying to figure out how we get them to have Pokemon go to the polls. Pokemon, one of the biggest fads of the late 90s, was once again a cultural omnipresence. Pokemon Go is raking in the big bucks. Since it came out a week ago, the value of Nintendo shares are up by $12 billion. It revitalized the franchise. It brought this new element in. It brought in new Pokemon users. Buray Lamb again. According to Comscore, which tracks this, at the peak of Pokemon Go, the app had something like 28 million daily players in the summer of 2016. That's so many people logging in every day to try to catch a Pokemon. Basically, if you were making a movie about the recent past and you wanted everybody to know it was taking place in the summer of 2016, your characters would be driving to a double feature of Jason Bourne and The Secret Life of Pets while listening to Work From Home by Fifth Harmony and talking about how crazy it was that Donald Trump was still running for president, and then they'd suddenly pull over to catch a Jigglypuff. The augmented reality aspect of Pokemon Go brought it into the 21st century. But for ride-or-die Pokemon fans, being able to look at your phone screen and see our world, the real world, suddenly full of Eevees and Zubats, was a powerful nostalgic trigger. Pokemon enthusiast Tim Geddes. There was that beautiful couple months of Pokemon Go of everyone running outside with their phones, trying to catch them all. And if that is not a beautiful thing as a Pokemon fan from the 90s to see, I don't know what is. To grow up and, you know, dream of throwing a Pokeball, to be able to see that in real life, I think, is such an amazing thing. YouTube personality and Tim Getty's co-worker, Greg Miller. When Pokemon Go initially drops, that's the closest we've ever been to world peace. But, and this is kind of wild, even after six years and a global pandemic, Pokemon Go continues to do numbers. In the Comscore 2021 report, approximately 9 million Pokemon players together played 2.8 billion minutes of Pokemon Go. So that's a lot. This was Tajiri's dream realized on a scale he never could have conceived of. Everybody stepping away from their screens, the indoor ones anyway, and rushing outside to find the world full of strange and wonderful creatures. The average age of a Pokemon Go user, by the way, is 26. With Pokemon Go, like Disney and Marvel before it, Pokemon had found a way to follow its young fans into adulthood. 
but it was also capturing people who'd never played anything Pokemon-related before and wouldn't know an Abra from a Gengar. My name is Michelle Keith, and I'm an attorney. Michelle is from Fairhaven, Massachusetts. And at the beginning of the story you're about to hear, she's familiar with Pokemon mostly because she's raised two sons, and over the years, she's had to buy them a bunch of gifts. I was very familiar with Pikachu because I had to go looking for Pikachu products and Bulbasaur and Squirtle and Charizard. So that was the extent of my knowledge of Pokemon. Now her sons are both adults. My sons had always been trying to get me to play games with them. And I must say, I have been a failed gamer. (laughs) And they were like, oh, (laughs) mom, come on. I'm like, I just can't. I'm sorry, guys. But in Fairhaven, there's a 224-year-old Revolutionary War fort called Fort Phoenix, which had become a hotspot for Pokemon Go players looking to catch rare Pokemon. So I said to my sons, would you please take me over there and show me what is it about this game? And they were thrilled. They're like, wow, finally. At one point that night, Michelle spotted a Drowsy, which is a yellow Pokemon with a long nose like a tapir that has the power to put people to sleep. But when Michelle called out to her sons to tell them about it, she said the name of a different Pokemon. I say, hey guys, there's a Snorlax here. Snorlax, Snor, Snorlax. Snorlax and Drowsy to me are in the same category. That's sleepy. It's Drowsy, Snorlax, Snoring, you know, so I I don't know the names. And they're like, what? And they come over to the phone. They're like, mom. That's a drowsy. They're like, don't you ever say there's a Snorlax here. You will cause a stampede of people. And I'm like, okay, okay. So that was Michelle's introduction to Pokemon Go. This whole new world right on top of our world with a bunch of weird rules. She was intrigued and she started playing more often. In that process, I discovered what it was like to be outside without raking leaves, without doing work. And I remember sitting up by the beach at Fort Phoenix one day and saying, wow, I haven't sat here under a tree on a bench anywhere just to chill and relax for years. These days, Michelle walks between 5,000 and 10,000 steps every day, which she says wouldn't have become a habit if not for Pokemon Go. As she spent more time chasing Pokemon, she started looking around and getting to know some of the people in her area who were doing the same thing. And then we started sharing information about locations around town. Oh, there are Dragonites over in this area. And that sort of is what spurred the connection between people was the quest to find these particular rare items. People got to know each other. People were talking about fun things. People from all different backgrounds. We have a lot of people with autism that would play with us. At one point, we've had um, a homeless man in the same car as a dental surgeon working together and seeing each other as as human beings. That would never happen. And um, 2016 was a a very difficult year where people were fighting a lot and it renewed my faith in people's ability to look at each other as human beings first and work together for the benefit of everybody. So Pokemon Go was bringing people together in Michelle's neighborhood and all over the world. But the game's explosive success also engendered an almost instantaneous backlash. Now to a story we've been talking about all week long. This Pokemon Go phenomenon is sparking fresh outrage this morning over where some people are playing it. A thousand clickbait news stories bloomed about zombified Pokemon players walking off cliffs and into traffic, 
falling into ponds, stumbling over dead bodies, and occasionally offending everyone by catching Pokemon in the most inappropriate places imaginable. People have also been caught playing at the 9-11 Memorial and the Holocaust Museum. These stories contributed to a narrative about Pokemon Go players as an army of mindless human drones. One day, when Michelle was at a community meeting about something unrelated, Some of the women started talking about, had anybody there gone over to Fort Phoenix and seen what's going on over there? And they're like, it's, a, it's like a third world country. Oh my goodness, there's garbage everywhere and there's tons of people and it's such a disturbance. Michelle, who had spent time out there and knew what was and wasn't happening, found herself defending the Pokemon Go community against accusations of despoiling the area around the fort. Eventually, Michelle and some of the other players decided to do something about their bad reputation. As they walked around collecting Pokemon, they also started collecting trash. People just started talking and saying, hey, you know, this isn't right. So they started every Saturday, they would get a group of people together, they would pick up all of the cigarette butts, they would pick up all the trash, anything that was around, they would take it away, uh, they would... Who has a, a dump permit? Will you take this to the dump? Everybody just cooperated to make sure that the space was being taken care of because they felt it was important for people to know that they were enjoying the game and it was a good thing. It wasn't a bad thing. They organized cleanups of the area around Fort Phoenix. They got their picture on the front page of the local paper with the headline, Way to Go. Get it? And they felt vindicated. It bred a connection for each other and then connection to your particular neighborhood or wherever you're cleaning, connection to the world. Fun and excitement, vigorous cardiovascular exercise, people not just meeting their neighbors, but actually joining forces with them to literally clean up their town. What could possibly be scary or dangerous about a game that was affecting the lives of people like Michelle Keith in so many positive ways? Well, I'll tell you. If you signed up with your Google account, Pokemon Go has had access to your email, your Google photos, and your Google documents. The issue that people have talked about is the security because yeah. you're giving someone your location yes. and access to your camera. So that's something that people say, is that a license for trouble? Obviously, there are legitimate reasons to be concerned about any app game that needs to know this much about you and what you're doing with it, especially a game like Pokemon Go, which, despite its broad appeal, is, at the end of the day, born from a franchise for kids. But in the case of Pokemon Go specifically, there were other reasons people became concerned. Deep state-type reasons. So the Pokemon brand is controlled by the Pokemon Company, which is based in Japan. But Pokemon Go was a licensed product made by an American company called Niantic Labs. The founder of Niantic is a guy named John Hankey. In the early 2000s, Hankey launched a company called Keyhole and began developing geomapping technology that could turn satellite imagery into data-rich environments that you could explore, like in a video game. And this is where I tell you what I can't wait to tell you which is that the investor that got Keyhole on its feet as a company was a venture capital firm called InQtel, a privately held Virginia nonprofit that invests in tech companies whose work might have national security applications and does so on behalf of its main backer, the Central Intelligence Agency. That's right, spies. In 2004, Keyhole was acquired by Google, and if you don't know who that is, just Google them, and Keyhole's geomapping product became known as Google Earth. 
at Google, Henke started Niantic Labs, and in 2015, Niantic spun off from Google, and about a year later, they launched Pokemon Go. If you're a conspiracy-minded kind of person, this all looks kind of bad. A game born out of some unholy alliance between the U.S. intelligence community and big tech? Were Pokemon Go users helping to build a Pokemon Panopticon? Was this free app that no one could resist actually costing all of us our privacy? What did we really know about this Pikachu? What game was he playing? My name is Bruce Schneier, and I am a security technologist. I work at the intersection of security, technology, and people. We talked to Bruce about how scared we should actually be about apps like Pokemon Go. Pokemon Go is certainly using the in-game data to refine the game. What people are doing, how they're playing, how they're using it. It's a game that's based on surveillance. The game works because the game knows where you are at all times. But as Bruce points out, Pokemon Go is probably not the only thing in your pocket that is snitching on you from moment to moment. The problem isn't Pokemon Go. The problem is everything. Every click you make on a website is, is, is tracked by an analytics program. You are being judged by your data shadow. Google knows when I get up in the morning, when I go to sleep, where I go to work, where I live. We all have one, so it knows who I sleep with. Cell phones are the most invasive surveillance device ever invented. It is almost impossible to live, as most people do these days, with one foot in the digital world without leaving a permanent and monetizable trail. And things are getting worse on that front every day, and we should probably all be more nervous about that than we currently are. But Pokemon has always made Americans nervous, even before the launch of the app, or even the advent of the smartphone. The fear was about the explosive popularity of a seemingly addictive multimedia franchise aimed at children. But let's face it, it was also about where that franchise originated. Tokyo-based writer Matt Alt again. It just started with that one or two Game Boy cartridges. That's what it started from. And had they not sold, it would have ended there. There was no major grand plan to turn Pokemon into the the, the most sellingest franchise of, of the 20th century. There was no grand plan. That was all projected by Westerners who saw in this really quite charming game a threat. Next time on The Big Hit Show, the roots of 90s America's anxiety about all things cool and Japanese. Part of that fear was actually quite a racist fear, an anti-Japan fear. How can you like Pokemon more than, say, Mickey Mouse? A healthy dose of international geopolitical context. It was a period when a lot of American observers, including the later President Donald Trump, felt like Japan was buying up America and how one nation's video game implosion became another nation's Christatunity. How do you know Rome is burning, right? You know, one place you could really see it was corporate parties. The quality of corporate parties really started to decline. From Higher Ground, this is The Big Hit Show. It's written and hosted by me, Alex Papadimus, and produced by Western Sound. Colin McNulty is our showrunner. Producers are Taylor Jones and Sabrina Fang. Our production assistant is Stella Hartman. Savannah Wright is our fact checker. Production help from Tyler Hill. Alec McInnes is our composer, sound designer, and mix engineer. Theme music by Dan Leone. 
The executive producer is Ben Adair. Our editor is Jamie York. Executive producers for Higher Ground are Dan Fearman, Anna Holmes, Mukta Mohan, and Janae Marable. Jen Eleven is our editorial assistant. Executive producers for Spotify are Daniel Eck, Don Ostroff, Julie McNamara, and Corinne Gilliard. Special thanks to Joe Paulson and Eric Spiegelman.